You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. For the last uh, couple weeks, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been looking at it, I guess, the way you would look through a prism. Uh, We've been trying to see the sermon as a whole rather than so much in its parts. Uh, I will continue this study in the Sermon on the Mount in the library uh, in some of the weeks of September. Uh, And I think uh, in those particular classes, I'll take one of the Beatitudes and one of the commands and one of the prohibitions uh, to illustrate how the sermon works. But on the whole, we're looking at the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to look at the conclusion, for the most part, uh, this morning. But what I've suggested to you is that the Sermon on the Mount gives us a, a mental picture, a framework in which to understand the Christian life. It is an illustration. When Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, And I'll give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, this is a picture of what it is to live under the easy yoke. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And in the the Beatitudes and the salt and light, we have a description of the character of the Christian. And then in the prohibitions where Jesus says, I'm not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. And then he goes on to say that, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he does that seven times over. And in each one of those, he drives home the point that it is a heart righteousness. It is coming from the inside out. That the greater righteousness, the righteousness that supersedes the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, is a righteousness that has come by the grace of God from within. And so it's not external. It's not moralistic. It's not legalistic. It's not an imposition on the life. But it issues out of the life. And uh, so that character description, that salt and light impact, that understanding of what it is to have the commands of God as human flourishing commands... That life is lived to the full. And so uh, the Sermon on the Mount is really uh, a kind of a, a composite, a, uh, a short course, a 12-minute message on something of the totality of what the Christian life looks like. This is what it means to have life and have it to the full. This is what it means to uh, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to fulfill the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is what it means to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this fleshes it out. It's concrete. It's practical. It's personal. It's not living in your head. It's not a talking head Christianity. Instead, it's a life-fulfilling Christianity. I may have shared this illustration with you before, um, but 
to me, it helps. It helps to make concrete uh, what the Sermon on the Mount is, a, is an aid for us. Let me begin with prayer. I think we've got our uh, cohort. Lord God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the preached word and for the worship that we, most of us, have just come from. Help us to see the Sermon on the Mount as a help, as a structure, as uh, a kind of fullness of what parenting would consist of, what grandparenting consists of, what following you, Lord Jesus, consists of. So lead us in the Jesus way, we ask, by your Spirit, to the glory of the Father. Amen. Charles Duhigg writes books for business people, and uh, in his chapter on focus, in his book, Smarter, Faster, Better, he tells the story of two uh, plane incidents. He begins with the 2009 Air France Flight 447, flying from Rio to Paris, that went down over the Atlantic. It took two years to find the plane's black box. And when they studied that black box, because there was a great mystery as to why this Airbus, which is one of the most sophisticated planes with highly duplicate systems uh, for safety, why it went down, they discovered that there was no mechanical failure, no electrical failure. It was just that the pilots lost attention. To what they were doing. Four hours into the trip, the plane was flying smoothly on full autopilot at 32,000 feet when the pitot tubes, which measure airspeed over the wings, froze. It's a common problem. When that happens, the autopilot system goes off and the pilot flies the plane. In this case, the pilot only needed to keep the plane level. But instead, and somewhat seemingly disoriented, he kept pointing the nose of the plane up. And at 32,000 feet, the plane is continuing to ascend higher and higher. Warning signals are going off in the cockpit. There's four pilots in that cockpit. The co-pilot is telling him, you know that you're ascending. And the pilot responds, okay. But continues to ascend as the bells and whistles keep going off. And now the computer is shooting out all sorts of data to correct the situation. Cognitive tunnel vision is what psychologists call it. In the moment, when you're shocked too, you're not thinking clearly. And this pilot was not thinking clearly. And the situation only worsened. And at 38,000 feet, he thought he was in a, what he called on the voice recorder, a TOGA, which is a takeoff, uh, a takeoff and go around uh, response to the to the situation, a TOGA, which is what you see when a plane is about to land and they have to divert from the runway and then suddenly full thrust and they go up. 
take off and go around. He thought he was in that kind of emergency situation, which was the exact opposite. And at 39,000 feet, the plane stalled and then dove into the ocean. Completely pilot error. A team of pilot errors. A year later, whoops. A year later, an Australian flight, the Qantas Airbus Flight 32, same plane, same systems. On the way to the airport, the pilot is quizzing the pilot team as to what they do, what should they do if something goes wrong. He reiterates to them that he wants pilots to speak even against his command if they feel that there is something wrong. He's educating the pilots and, as they, and how they're going to work together on the way to the airport. Well, Qantas 32 took off. They took off from uh, Sydney for Singapore and at 7,400 feet, the plane blew an engine. Not just an engine, though, it ripped a large portion of the wing off at the same time. 22 systems of the plane were impacted by this. And again, all the warning sounds and symbols are going off in the cockpit. And the computer is now producing data for each one of the systems that's malfunctioned as to what to do to correct it. There's confusion in the cockpit. They're analyzing everything that's going wrong. And suddenly the pilot says, I don't need to know what's going wrong. Tell me what works. And in that moment, a mental image came into his mind of flying a Cessna, the first plane he ever flew. A simple, non-computered plane and he pretended, I'm flying a Cessna. What would I do in a Cessna right now? And people credit that mental image, that focus in that minute, that moment, in those moments, with the pilot's ability to collect his thoughts, understand he was flying a plane, and doing what was basic to flying. Well, for me, the Sermon on the Mount is something like that. It's the mental image. It's the focus. Duhigg talks about, he takes the illustration, his illustration of the two planes and the radically different uh, outcomes where a very seriously damaged plane was safely landed. The most seriously damaged passenger jet that has landed safely um, of that type and credits the idea of the pilot's ability to focus in the midst of the chaos. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is something that, I don't know, I personally, and I think Christians generally, ought to understand in such a way as this gives us the mental focus. This gives us the picture of what the Christian life looks like. A beatitude-based belief that's really grace, grace allowed, grace permitted, grace inspired. I come to the terms that I am poor in the spirit. I am completely dependent upon the Lord and I can never outgrow that. I never graduate from the Beatitudes. 
I never move on from mourning for my sin and the need for repentance. I never realize that there's a different kind of strategy than meekness for inheriting the earth. I never lose interest in a hunger and thirst for righteousness. I never realize that uh, a form of, uh, of resistance or alienation with this world is going to be the product of having followed by the grace of God a dependence upon him for his salvation. And that that beatitude-based belief turns out to have a kind of public salt and light impact in the world. And then that salt and light impact plays itself out in the fulfillment of righteousness, a greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. A greater righteousness because it's rooted in the grace of Christ. It's rooted in a repentance and an atoning sacrifice of Christ through the risen Lord. That kind of visible righteousness, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty, and that these attributes become something of, of our life. I mean, saving faith has its way of working itself out. And this is the visible. This is what the world was meant to see. Reconciliation instead of retaliation. Prayer instead of revenge. This is the way we parent. This is the way we grandparent. This is the way we live our life. This is the way we live into friendship. The attitude-based belief, salt and light impact, the fulfillment of a greater righteousness, and then a hidden righteousness. That the praying and the giving and the fasting is something that I do for my Father in heaven to see, not for the world to see, not to show off. And that hidden righteousness is then followed by a series of prohibitions. Don't worry. Don't store up treasures on earth. Don't be judgmental. Don't cast pearls before swine. A kind of liberating do-nots. Now one of the angles that I've been especially interested in in the Sermon on the Mount this time through has been, well, how does this sermon work in the secular age? And as I've said before, it is countercultural in whatever age this sermon is preached. It was countercultural in Jesus' day, it's countercultural in our day. And it's countercultural, like, for example, do not worry about what you're going to dress, what you're going to eat, where you're going to live. And what strikes me is that it's not only the small m materialism that we have to be concerned about and that particularly Jesus' audience was concerned about, but it's capital M materialism where there is nothing else than the material world. A kind of imminent frame that exists and there is no transcendence. There is no other. On the news when there is a, a notable suicide. Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, or Richard Russell, the person who took over the plane at, at uh, Seattle and crashed it yesterday. We immediately turn, and I think rightly so, to mental illness. 
But what you will not hear on the news is that it's also very much possibly a metaphysical issue. That my life is good. I have good relationships. Isn't this what Richard Russell basically said? I've got people who care for me. He's got a good wife. And, but maybe I've got a few screws loose and I just am realizing that now. An amazing statement. But could it be that it's really not just mental illness or not mental illness in some cases, but a metaphysical issue? I really deep down have nothing to live for because there is nothing. There is nothing. And I'm going to die someday. As Camus, Camus uh, speculated, well, I might as well die today because there's nothing more to live for. Well, the conclusion of the sermon. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter, five, chapter 7. Jesus illustrates the conclusion of his sermon in three ways. Uh, he talks about entering through a narrow gate. He talks about bewaring of false prophets. And he talks about building on the rock and not on the sand. It's just like Jesus and his effective preaching to illustrate and illustrate and illustrate what he means here. Enter through the narrow gate, watch out for false prophets, be like a wise person who built his house on the rock. Three warnings. And all three of these emphasize the difference between external appearance and internal reality. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Uh, this is not spoken against sort of Broadway paganism. This is not what Jesus had in mind when he was speaking to uh, these uh, Galileans in the company of religious leaders. What was at issue here was the narrow way of this internal, beatitude-based, character-forming faith that's from the inside out, rather than both religious and pagan externals. The narrow gate has nothing to do with kind of a narrowness of mind and heart. Exact opposite. But it has to do with either this righteousness that is the greater righteousness that is internal. It's part of you. It's who you are because of Christ. And choosing that. Intentionally embracing that. Understanding that that is who you are. And of course you cannot do that just here at the Advent. You would have to do that at the office. You would have to do that at corporate. You would have to do that at the clinic. You'd have to do that on the showroom floor. You'd have to do that everywhere. This is who you are. And you are always that. 
wherever you are. There is no division here between the public self and the private self. There's no sort of personal persona and public persona. And in doing so, who wouldn't know that you've gone through the narrow gate? Everybody would know you'd gone through the narrow gate. The people you recreate with, the people that you travel with for sales, the people that you work with uh, and the partnership, everybody would know that you've gone through that narrow gate. And not that you were narrow. In fact, they would find this kind of humility that's so deep-seated that there is an openness to the other. And a way of loving the others that was really not self-serving, but self-sacrificing. They would know that about you, having gone through the narrow gate. They would know that you didn't worry about material things. That you sat loose to that. The second warning uh, is more elaborate and here, and he illustrates the illustration even more. In verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And then a, a second illustration of the nature between true and false prophets. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Again, the whole thrust here on the greater righteousness is that which is inward, and then manifest outwardly. But it's something that comes from deep within of who we are. The third warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I don't know about you, but that is one of the most um, uh, unnerving statements in the Bible for me. Because I spend a lot of time saying, Lord, Lord. But here, what Jesus is saying is that there are people who are outwardly very much conformed to me. They speak of me all the time. And they even are able to do some fantastic things in my name. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. I don't know you. It's got to be somewhat unnerving. But all of those, I, I misspoke here. It was the, the wolves and, and sheep and it's the bad fruit, good fruit. And then it is these true and false disciples. All of which illustrate this idea of that which is false. And then his third warning. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice 
is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built his house on the sand. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. I always am struck by the fact that this is the conclusion of the sermon. Uh, You know, I think we probably teach preaching in such a way that you leave people not with a crash, but you leave people with some kind of hope and some kind of positive turn at the end of the sermon. Jesus doesn't seem to comply with that. He ends on a very kind of sober note. Build your house on the rock and you will survive the storm. Build your house on the sand, no matter how beautiful that house is, and it will collapse, it will be destroyed. Amen. We're done here. Um, and Jesus' conclusion sort of takes you back. He was, uh, had these quick, uh, powerful uh, conclusions. Well, on your uh, outline, on letter A under that number three, we do not domesticate the gospel to fit the plausibility structures of the late modern mind. We are not fighting for a version of Christianity that the world finds reasonable or plausible or efficient or successful or valuable. Jesus provided a radical new way that didn't fit with either the religious or irreligious culture. There's a radical contradiction between the gospel and the wisdom of the world. So the question that then comes, are we prepared for that kind of Christian faith, for that Jesus way? Um, Have we labored under a miscomprehension, a misapprehension about the nature of the Christian life, that it fits conveniently, easily, nicely into my conventional cultural life? And I think Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount says, no, it doesn't fit that life. It's really radical to the core. You may dress the same way. You may be sort of outwardly the same way, but uh, outwardly really very differently. Inwardly really very differently. The late modern culture separates values and facts. Well, that's a simple sentence. It's an awfully complicated and profound thought. That what we've come to believe, it seems, within the late modern age, the secular age, is that facts are one thing. Values are another. And I make up what I value. What I value is a subjective reality. Factuality is left to the material, empirical, quantifiable, measurable realm. That's fact. But what I value is left up to my subjective self, to what I deem is true and important for me, maybe not for you. And what Jesus would say to us in the Sermon on the Mount is, there is not that kind of dichotomy between value and fact. Obedience to me is the most profound and important and universal fact that you could ever comprehend. 
That's factual. That's concrete. That is what ought to be unmovable. So building your house on the rock. And you know, Jesus will pick up that uh, metaphor of the rock. The rock being a metaphor used throughout the Old Testament for God. And he'll pick up that metaphor in his conversation with his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And remember the disciples say, well, some say Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And he goes on to give him the keys of the kingdom. And he goes on to say, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this metaphor of the rock is a symbol not only of its concreteness, of its solidness, of its factual base, but the reality that Christ is that rock. The one who's speaking the Sermon on the Mount, that authoritative eye that comes through in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. You've heard it said, but I say to you, is really the incarnate one, God in flesh, speaking to us, the word that was made flesh. I was struck by something that Cameron said in his book, Therefore I Have Hope, because this idea of fact and value was the critical factor in establishing his Christian faith from kind of a conventional religious faith to a true, solid Christian faith. He writes on page 53 in his book, Tragedy will pulverize. Tragedy will pulverize a subjective, individually crafted, emotion-based faith. That's a great line. Tragedy, it's a great truth. Tragedy will pulverize a subjective, individually crafted, emotion-based faith. If you find yourself in this place, finding your faith crumbling and not sustaining you, as you read these pages, I do have good news. There's an answer to the voice of despair. A major shift occurred in my life during my junior year of college. I stopped following Christ because it worked. Stopped following Christ because that felt good. I started following Christ because I believed the worldview portrayed in the scripture was actually true. A relatively mild disappointment in college overwhelmed my emotion-based, pragmatic faith. I thought that if I faithfully obeyed God, then I would get what I wanted. When what I wanted didn't develop my junior year, I was crushed and angry very angry. In a reckless interstate car ride, I repeatedly screamed the question, why do I even believe this stuff? Why do I even trust God if things don't work out the way I want them to? I didn't have an answer. And after several hours of dangerous driving and bitter lamenting, God answered my question by giving me this simple realization, because it's true. Because it's true. In those moments, I remembered the resurrection. And now I had an answer to the voice. And this is why Cameron's words to Lauren 
on news that his son had died. Lauren, Christ is risen from the dead. God is good. This doesn't change that fact. This doesn't change that fact. As long as we make this kind of division between value and fact, and we do not realize that the truth that is described to us in God's word, the truth that is embodied in the message of the gospel, as long as we feel that that truth is somehow our subjective private domain, and it's not the universal truth that is needed for everyone, we really will not have heard or experienced the Sermon on the Mount as the Lord intended for us to receive it. It is a fact-based faith. And faith is the earnest expectation of sight. There really is a risen Lord Jesus Christ. And by his grace, we become beatitude-based believers salt with salt and light impact, with a very visible kind of greater righteousness, Not the righteousness that calls attention to itself, but a righteousness that calls attention to the goodness of God and his saving work. So in September, when I meet in the library with whoever is interested, we will take up a beatitude, a command, and a prohibition. But thank you for these few weeks in discussing the sermon in in this context. And we've pretty much exhausted our time. So you have to come to the library if you really want questions and answers. Uh, Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your goodness to us, for your love and mercy. We praise you. In the name of Christ, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, We hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.